This week in the markets, gold shares outperformed most blue chip stocks as sharp investors picked up shares at discounted prices. Well, welcome back to GoldSeek.com Radio, everyone. Your host, Chris Waltzek. Just great to be back with you. Season 14, Episode 700. Precious Metals shareholders enjoyed the rally for the third week running in anticipation of lower domestic rates. Peter Schiff and I discussed the prospects for the precious metals in Part 2 of our chat. The head of Schiff Gold and Euro-Pacific Capital shares his key insights on several financial markets. The echo Great Recession could be more intense than the 2008 meltdown. That, according to my guest, he's concerned about huge debt to leverage he sees all throughout the system, including residential housing, where he thinks there could also be an echo bubble. But his primary concern remains the U.S. dollar and related paper asset. Gold, silver, and related shares remain the key panacea to shield investment portfolios from the risks on a short and even long-term basis. Then Harry S. Dent Jr. rejoins the show. Although he agrees with Peter Schiff in the long term that the financial markets are, well, doomed, you might say, the Nasdaq could soar to 10,000 and the Dow 33,000, assuming that the U.S. and China work out their trade issues. He cites Mario Draghi, the EU minister, noting that he'll do whatever it takes to protect the EU financial markets. And of course, that was viewed as highly inflationary. The FOMC seems to be following that particular playbook. And if you'd like to call into the Q&A hotline, that's 641-715-3900. I'd like to encourage you to call in, you can reach us. You'll need the mailbox number, 514049. Please jot this down. You can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 641-715-3900, followed by extension number 514049. We'd like to field your questions and comments. Robert Ian wraps up the show with his latest must-hear report. And just a quick recap, folks, of the SignalHunters.net findings of the week as well as our ancientartifactspreservation.blogspot.com. That's my new website. It's a 501c3 nonprofit startup, and we're really excited about several of the videos posted there. Please bookmark the site. You can find all the links at our website. We've identified carvings here all around the world, it's under the radar screen of much of academia and the implications, folks, of this remarkable information we just are having difficulty fathoming. It appears that there is not just evidence anymore, but proof. If you can walk right up to, we have artifacts all over the world, folks, that is just now starting to make, I think, the periphery. A visitation of at least a type one Kardashev civilization. Now, what do we mean by that? That's roughly two to three hundred years ahead of where we are technologically, or perhaps it's somewhere in between where we are now and 50 to 100 years from now. But can you imagine what anyone 50 to 100 years in our past would think of today with we're all walking around with supercomputers in our pockets, right? iPhones, Androids. So these visitors they were clearly far beyond where we are and were just frankly overwhelmed here at ancientartifactspreservations.blogspot.com and signalhunters.net trying to do our best to decode and present this, essentially looking at material and trying to decipher texts, frankly three-dimensional and certainly holographic, depending on the angle that these carvings are presented. And incidentally, it really mirrors so much that we found all throughout the solar system, especially from NASA's amazing Curiosity rover, and earlier, by the way, their rovers to the red planet. They came to the Earth. They've left us messages of extraordinary value to our society. And so if you'd like to get involved or just reach out or just bookmark us and tell people about us, I think you're going to enjoy some of these videos, especially if you, if you're into anthropology and please get on my waiting list for the upcoming book where the best of these images and all the analysis will be presented. Goldseek.com radio begins now with a market weather recap. 
visibility was virtually unlimited over the precious metals sector for the third week running as investors sent the yellow metal soaring to the highest intraday level in 14 months on growing uncertainty on the impact of the trade war on domestic and global trade. At Friday's closing bell, the yellow metal was still at lofty levels, finishing near break-even around 1345. Silver gave back just a few pennies, under $15, while the XAU precious metal shares added about 2%, up $1.50 at 76 Black gold soared $1.50, up to 52.50 on increased tensions in the Persian Gulf. Palladium, though, really stole the show. $105 gained. 8% in a single week at 1462. This has been one of our darlings. And now we can, we remember why this week. One of the big stories there was concerns over potential shipping issues amid some related news in the Persian Gulf. And platinum finished near breakeven around $805. The top story moving the markets, the precious metal notched its 12th daily gain in 13 days as investors bet that the slowdown in the world economy would dampen economic growth in the U.S. And that would likely push our Fed officials to curtail interest rates. Gold has already added about 5% this year, benefiting from the bets that our policymakers will start a new rate cut cycle as soon as this fall. Next week, the Federal Open Market Committee will meet to discuss rates and that which have held steady. According to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange Fed Funds Futures, we have a 55% probability of a rate cut at the upcoming September meeting. Now, this is a significant change from last week where we were looking for the possibility of a rate cut as soon as July. Turning to related news, holdings of the Spider Gold Trust, this is the world's largest gold-backed exchange-traded fund for the yellow metal, added half a percent this week to approximately 760 tons. On Wednesday, investors are also adding to related exchange-traded funds. Holdings climbed to the highest level since late February. One senior gold miner also gained on Friday, this is Anglo Gold Ashanti Limited helped lead the rally higher. Bottom line on the precious metals. Well, it was just another spectacular week, especially for the shares. That's, of course, great news for our gold aficionados. We're also seeing some concerns, obviously, about the tensions increasing around the world, concern about the trade war this week, and the possibility of lower rates, which, of course, is inflationary. So you might say a trifecta of good news for the precious metals. Turning to Wall Street, visibility virtually unlimited as well over the New York Stock Exchange for the second week running. Investors loaded portfolios with those discounted shares in anticipation of a new rate cut cycle following next week's slated FOMC meeting. By Friday's closing bell on Wall Street, the Dow added 106 points, about half a percent, just shy of 26,090. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 added 14, about half a percent at 28.87, and the Nasdaq picked up 55, a little less than a percent, 7,800. Investors mostly chose the sidelines this week ahead of next week's FOMC meeting. This is, of course, typical behavior given the uncertainty with rates. Plus, a new risk factor was thrown into the mix and financial models as well this week. Tensions in the Persian Gulf piled on the list of growing geopolitical uncertainty for investors, including black gold, which climbed in response to an attack on two tankers in the Gulf of Oman on Thursday. Turning to interesting U.S. shares news, CNBC's stock guru, Mad Money Jim Cramer, added a couple of noteworthy portfolio candidates, including PayPal, ticker PYPL. In his lightning round, Cramer also was bullish on Yeti Holdings, ticker YETI. Both look solid from a technical perspective, as well as GenPak, ticker G. U.S. shares bottom line. Well, the USA Today Greed to Fear Index finally dropped to the extreme fear level, and this is viewed as a positive, perhaps suggesting that the herd are nervous, offering discounts for value investors. The technical position is constructive, with tech shares exhibiting relative strength beyond the blue chips. The Alpha Stocks Gold candidate soared this week, so if you haven't yet signed up, we'd like to have you on board. Coming up after the break, more Gold Seek Radio.
it's a pleasure to welcome back author of Zero Hour and editor of Economy and Markets. Welcome back, Harry Estent Jr. Nice to be back, Chris. Last week, the Fed head, Jerome Powell, surprised the markets a bit. The Fed funds futures collapsed at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. We were expecting a rate hike no sooner than December, January, this year, next year. And, of course, now it looks like July. There's a much higher probability that we will see a rate cut, okay, perhaps the beginning of a new rate cut cycle. What are the implications of lower rates for the markets? What it says to the markets, on one hand, oh, even the Fed thinks and acknowledges the economy slow, slowing globally, which it is outside the United States, and even we're maybe already slowing a bit after the tax cut hit. Uh, on the other hand, lower rates, uh, short-term and even more so long-term, and, and the long-term treasuries have come down. That's way more important for the stock market because stock valuations are basically earnings forecasts discounted by the 10-year treasury bond rate. So the lower that rate is, the more those future earnings forecasts are worth. So it goes both ways. But to me, uh, right now, the fact that this is looking to go from tightening back to neutral to stimulative, the market's like that. And, and I've been saying, uh, you know, for many months now and, and started as soon as Trump got elected because of the tax cut potential that, hey, this this final wave of this bubble looks like it's going to last longer. And I'm expecting that the Nasdaq could go to 10,000 by late this year, early next year. The Dow could go to 33,000 or you know, something like that. So I think we're in a blow-off bubble. And, and I think for the markets, it's the perfect scenario here. The world is definitely slowing, but China's stimulating because of that a bit. Europe, uh, more than a bit. Europe, a bit. They're, they're going more from tightening a bit to uh, accommodative again. We're looking at going accommodative. So the, the, the economy's slowing just enough to get central banks to be accommodative. And that's enough for the markets. The markets, as long as we don't get in a war with Iran, which is still a possibility in some, some level, and the China trade deal comes through sometime, and I'm still skeptical because I think they want world domination, not a deal here. Um, markets think will go up, but, but ultimately, if they're having to cut because the economy keeps slowing, especially into next year, if, they, if, if the economy's slowing into next year, with all the stimulus, that is not a good sign to me. And I, I do expect that the markets are going to peak by early next year and start to crash. And, and if that happens, it, it's uh, bad for Trump. This is unprecedented. As you know, the Fed did not wring the liquidity out of the system. That's really one of the first times I can recall where such an enormous amount of quantitative easing-like operations, and there's still almost $4 trillion on their balance sheet, again, citing the St. Louis Fed's numbers. And we're two of not many voices on this show that believe that the Fed, their new change in stance, it's good news uh, for the economy. And you have to admit, our POTUS really cajoled the Fed head, saying, look, we need to cut rates. I want to see a 1% rate cut can't remember any time where, you know, a president actually stood up to a standing Fed chairman. These rates need to go down on any specific target. And the market's like that, right? Because rightly or wrongly, it says, hey, we've got major leadership. He's going to give us uh, more candy. Of course, long term, as soon as they find out they can, they can put elected officials into place that will give them free goodies. It's the beginning of the end. It is unprecedented that there be, I mean, it's literally globally, you're talking 12 to $13 trillion of money creation with all central banks. Like it's like, say, it's closer to four at peak for the Fed. And this is just, this has never happened uh, except in World War II and not even to this degree for anywhere near this length. This is unprecedented to, for central banks to say, we are not going to liquidate a, a debt bubble or a financial asset bubble. We're going we're gonna to stop a depression, a deleveraging from happening at all costs, as Mario Draghi was the first one to say, I will print any amount of money to keep people from shorting uh, you know, uh, government bonds and, and, and keep this economy going. This long term, this is the worst thing you can do, that the relative amount is much greater now because it, it's been more and for a longer period of time. The difference is, 
World War II was a true emergency. We're fighting a war and having to issue massive amounts of Treasury bonds to fund it. And, and with the inflationary aspects of war, and war is inflationary, those bonds would have cost the government a fortune. So they did do quantitative easing. Their biggest motive was to push down the rates on the bonds they're having to finance long-term debt with to fight the war. This time, they're doing the same thing. They're pushing down the rates. The, the pushing down the rates on long-term bonds is much more important than the short-term rates being set at zero. A lot of bonds, government bonds and high-quality bonds around the world are negative adjusted for inflation, and other ones like the Treasury got down to zero just inflation. That's long-term free money. That means companies buy back their stocks cheaply. Uh, earnings per share has gone up 119% faster than actual earnings for corporations, and that's why stocks are 120% overvalued from what my spending wave says they should be right now. So we have this stock market on crack from free money and leverage and stock buybacks and, and lower T-bond rates to make the earnings more about Everything's working in their favor, while mainstream, this recovery's average 2%. This recovery's no strong, well, from the top in 2007, and then this is a great comparison, through 2018, which is the top in 29 to 1940, 11 years, cumulative GDP only went up 19% in this recovery versus 20% back in the Great Depression. We have already had the lowest real GDP growth rates in history in the last 11 years, even with massive stimulus. Imagine how much it would have been much lower and how much inflation we would have seen without it. Totally unprecedented in non-wartime history. And even World War II was unprecedented. We never had to finance a war that big. World War I, we didn't see nearly as much money printing. We also saw technological explosion, right? Revolution. Everything radar led to microwave ovens and MRI technology. And, and of course, we also had a nuclear, rightly or wrongly, whether you like it or not, a nuclear revolution that brought enormous energy, um, especially to Europe and the United States and now China. Even though nobody thinks fondly of the period, incredible benefits to society, which boosted the economy in ways that are very difficult, I think, to quantify. Looking at today, we have, you know, last week's Fed Beige Book report last Wednesday showed the economy moderate for, for the most part from April to mid-May. Growth is held in check, of course, by some labor shortages. And the big thing, tariffs and more saber-rattling now towards our southern neighbor. Really extended tariffs to virtually every country we have uh, put substantial tariffs on Canada's lumber, our imports for our housing market on Canada. We're now threatening Mexico and, of course, the $200 billion levying, of course, tariffs and other trade barriers on our largest trading partner and the second global powerhouse economically, China. What are the threats and risks to the markets over this trade war? Or do you agree with some of our other guests that think it's a non sequitur? The Roaring Twenties bubble and burst, the greatest in history, was saw very similar things. The first thing they did was start to restrict immigration in a high immigration era. Restricting immigration, whether you like immigrants or not, is not the issue. Demographically, it's a negative. Less people coming in, less people working, contributing, paying taxes, spending all this stuff. And then trade wars, and, and you know, right uh, in the late stages of the boom and the early stages of the bust, trade wars, which just create a, a fix, a, a, a more limited pie, a shrinking pie, and basically hurt everybody in the end, even though it may favor some countries at first to others. This is the same stuff. But the biggest thing, Chris, no, no, no bigger trend than this is the greatest, most global, most pervasive bubble, which means it's been in commodities, which have already burst, real estate, which is yet to burst for the second time, stocks yet to burst now for the third time. The greatest bubble in history has been created by all this stimulus and a lot of natural trends like demographics and debts. But lots of this, and, and bubbles only burst, and when they burst, you can only keep them from bursting so long, and this has been heroic. When they burst, it ends very badly. The typical bubble burst crash for stocks is 70 to 90 percent, and 1929 to 32 was 89 percent for blue-chip stocks like the Dow. 
those are some absolutely remarkable numbers for the typical portfolio investor. Pretty solid. Okay, let's move on to the housing market. You know, the case Shiller certainly seems to indicate an echo housing boom. We're seeing, I believe, numbers now that are even in excess of the 2006-2007. You see new housing starts. That's a solid indicator of strength. It remains robust. We saw new housing starts turn over, roll over ahead of the housing bust in 2006-2007, and we're not seeing that this time. And so I'd like to know where you think we are in the housing cycle. I forecast Japan's bubble burst in stocks and housing in late 80s when no thought they were going to take over the world. That's why I don't like coincident indicators. Everything looks great at the top, including housing in most cases and stuff, or any statistics. But Basically, Japan crashed and then never bounced 28 years later after the peak. Never. When the next generation came along, not as big as their baby boom, which came ahead of ours. And I realized people are dying faster than young people are coming along buying for the first time in history. So I changed my real estate indicators to what I call net demand. Who are the peak buyers? How are they growing versus the dyers who are sellers? And you know what? This boom has only come up a little higher than the last bubble. So people say, well, it's not that overvalued and the economy's stronger. But compared to this net demand, much lower now here and around the world. Uh, housing was overvalued 21% in 2006 up, and it's overvalued 42% now. I'm seeing a 40 to 50% crash in the next several years. Just uh, So a bigger crash than we saw in the Great Recession. And, and housing may be the last to peak here, but it will go down, and it is more overvalued than it looks because you have to look at under the hood. Real demand for housing is much lower than it used to be. It's only the super low interest rate and another bubble where people think you can't lose. you got to be in this bubble causing this to go up. This is going to end worse than the last bubble in housing. What will be the panacea? Our foot officials, I mean, we've seen their playbook, okay? We saw it in 2006, 2007. They came up with some unique methods all around the world, coordinated efforts of multiple central banks and institutions key uh, money center lending banks and institutions, a real coordinated effort. And this time, you know, you wonder what's going to be their go-to method. I mean, they've got 18 maybe trillion dollars were required to uh, keep the entire system from freezing up in an epic credit crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen arguably since 1930. Well, they're just going to keep stimulating. They're going to keep creating a bubble. They can't create demands only going up because of the wealth factor, not because of demographic trends. Debt has never been deleveraged, so it's still weighing on everybody in the economy and stuff. So they're just going to go they blow. And, and, the, and the problem is once it blows, one of the other things I've researched in the last several years, Chris, is that when a bubble peaks in stocks, now there's, I can give you other examples, but in stocks, the first crash is 40 1% on average in the first two and a half months of typical bubble crashes, 70 90% for stocks. So let's call it 80 on average. Half of that's going to happen in the first two to three months, and people are stunned. They sell and they panic, and there's a bounce off of that when the smart money buys in, and then you get this two to three year 80% downtrend. It is brutal. My problem is next time things go bad, the crash is going to be steeper. And, and harder than it was in 2008. And, and, and even back then, the central banks were late to react. The stock market was already down 54%. We'd already seen a recession of 10 to 11% unemployment, the worst since the Great Depression and similar to 1982 with 83. We'd already seen heavy damage, but they reacted big. But now they've blown most of their powder. They can't react as much. And I think this next one will happen harder and faster and they will lose confidence because people will see, oh, wait a minute, last time this happened, they printed a bunch of money and things got better for a while, although anemically. Here we are now looking worse than 2008, and 2008 looked exactly, as you said earlier, like 1930. It would have been a Great Depression if they hadn't printed $12 trillion. Why don't you give us your outlook on the precious metals? Are you looking for a crack-up boom, first the deflation, then the inflation? Um, or are we going to have something a bit more complex this time? And what does that mean for our precious metals aficionados? I think, you know, 
we had a little bit of deflation last time, but the money printing offset that. And then gold, of course, rallied the most with the money printing because the assumption was trillions of dollars of money printing. If this doesn't cause inflation, it won't. What won't? Gold is the ultimate inflation hedge, the best in all of history. And that's why it did so well in the 1970s crisis. The economy sucked, but inflation was high and gold did incredibly well. This is, I think we get in the next downturn, we get deeper deflation. That hurts gold at first. Uh, gold, by the way, though, Chris, because I have, you know, monitored all the commodities and in the commodity bubble, gold and Bitcoin have been the only two um, things you can invest in in that realm. Bitcoin doesn't quite count, but it's still similar um, that have not gone down as much as the other bubbles. It bubbled up as much gold did as the commodities or more has not corrected as much. So it's showing gold has more strength in the commodity sector. I, I used to say gold could go to 450 to 700. I'm saying 1,000 now. I think it's going to go down in, in the next downturn, but it could be as little as 1,000, as much as 700. And then gold's going to be one of the leading commodities in the next long-term commodity boom from 2020 to 38. So Right now, gold has, I think, some more upside, of anything. In the early stages of the downturn, it may outperform like it did in 2008. But when the downturn gets bad, deflation sets in. Go back to 2008, 2009. You might recall, you know, stocks were plunging 20, 30 percent or more. Most everything except for treasuries, T-bills, especially T-bonds, they were soaring. But virtually every asset was in free fall. And gold, you know, it, it essentially treaded water, kind of held its own. It bounced, as you said, you know, kind of sideways. And then it really took off. And that seems to mirror or echo some of your sentiments today. 33 percent and silver, 50 percent at the worst of the crisis. You're right. It actually went sideways to up, which was way better than everything else going down. And then when the money printing happened on the side, and of course, there's going to be inflation to a lesser degree on the other side of this crash, then of course, gold would do well. So, so gold, if I had to be in a commodity, I'd be in gold. I still think gold has limited upside. I think 1525 is the ultimate resistance because that's where it really broke down when, when people first realized that money printing was escalating up and inflation was still not responding. And that's when gold finally cracked in early 2013. But gold has held up the best in the commodity sector. And I think the next commodity boom after this crash is going to be stronger than ever because emerging countries are going to dominate. You know, the two biggest consumers of gold in the world and way out distancing investment, central banks, everything else, China and India. And they're going to they're gonna be the next economy. Don't forget Russia, too. Russia is accumulating. I think you could make the case that gold is the true only free lunch. If you think of investing from a purely scientific, very few assets have a negative correlation that even come close to gold. I mean, I challenge you to find a bond fund that's even negatively correlated to U.S. equities. So um, it has that unique characteristic. And I'd also throw in there just a modicum, 1% or 2% in the cryptos, because they also have some unique correlation aspects. Why don't you tell people more about your books and your newsletter and what else they can find when they bookmark your website? The best way, you know, to get to know us, our economy and markets is free. You just go to harrydent.com, put in your... Uh, uh, email, and you're on. And then you can listen to us. It's a daily newsletter. We have monthly newsletters and higher-level newsletters, investment services. But, you know, get to know us first, and you can do that for free. So the best thing to do is just go to harrydent.com, get on our newsletter. Zero Hour is our latest book, and I'm looking at releasing my next book probably around the turn of next year, right? somewhere between late this year and early next year. I'm not going to even go to a publisher on this one, Chris, because we got to release it right when it's happening. Because remember, that first crash, 42% in the first two and a half months. We want to catch that. Can you tell people about your services? Go to harrydent.com um, and, and you can get on our newsletter. Economy and Markets is our free newsletter. We have some paid newsletters, but the best thing, get on our on Economy and Markets. You just put in your, your, your email and you're on our free newsletter. You can get to know it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris.
shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. Goldseek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24 karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by by 2021, Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated, ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. With sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's shareholders. Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, many jewelry. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, one gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Welcome back, Peter Schiff. Well, thanks for welcoming me back. I see your stagflation. It makes complete sense. However, I think you are way ahead of the curve. I think you're seeing the future a year, maybe 18 months early. I've been way early for a decade. I mean, I was talking about these problems a long time ago. So it's not like I'm just coming out with this. I mean, I, I, I was seeing through to the end game before, before the, the financial crisis. So it, it's already taken us a long time to get where we are. And we're still not at the crisis yet. But because extend and pretend for as long as we have, we have not addressed the underlying problems. We have, you know, allowed the problems to get much, much bigger. So whatever I thought was in store for the economy a decade ago, you know, we have something much worse now because the problems uh, were allowed to get much more severe uh, over time rather than dealing with them when they were smaller. And, of course, they weren't small a decade ago. The problems were enormous. They're just that much more enormous now. And, and so it's going to be that much more difficult uh, for the economy to deal with the restructuring process. Professor Kotlikoff completely mirrors your sentiments. He's upped his estimate of total U.S. debt, uh, if we include obligations, from $200 trillion to 240 With rates, obviously, a new lower rate cycle around the corner, policymakers are going to lower rates. And that tends to make issuing debt much more appealing to our corporations, all right? You know, the train of buybacks tends to flow across the newswire. That's going to be another problem because... When the Fed starts, you know, buying bonds, they're not buying corporate bonds. They're buying treasuries. 
And and so even if treasury bonds are rising and rates are falling, corporate bonds could be falling and rates could be rising. I mean, I think you're going to see some horrific losses in the corporate bond market. I mean, the problem is that years and years of cheap money, a lot of corporate debt has been underpriced. I mean, the yields on junk bonds have been ridiculously low relative to uh, higher credit quality bonds. Uh, and even, you know, lower grade corporate bonds, the yields have not really reflected the risk. And as we start to see some companies blowing up in this next recession, and not just the stockholders losing money, stockholders are going to get wiped out. Bondholders are going to be losing money. I mean, I talked about that on my recent podcast when I was talking about Tesla. Like a lot of people want to talk about how much that stock has gone down, but look at the bonds. That company has a lot of debt and the bonds are starting to lose value. And if the bonds are losing value, I mean, that means that the bondholders are worried that they're not going to get their money back. And if they don't get their money back, that means the stock's worth nothing. I mean, at least worth nothing to the stockholders. It has some enterprise value that would be transferred to the bondholders, but the bondholders are thinking that whatever they get in a bankruptcy will not be equal to face value of the bonds. But the point is, if we start to see some big blow-ups in the corporate bond market, that means that rates are going much, much higher for corporate debtors. Even if they go lower for the U.S. government, they're going higher uh, for U.S. corporations. And that is going to be a huge, huge problem because that means that the companies are not going to get the benefit of the lower interest rates like they did last time if spreads are are rising. And so even if Treasury rates go down a little bit, uh, corporate rates could go up a lot. And the same thing could be happening in the mortgage market. So that doesn't bode well for uh, the housing sector. I think that we could see as confidence is lost, of course, in corporate debt and really just debt across the board. You could see something paralleling 2008, 2009, the great crisis. We're looking at potential for lower rates. Is that going to save the housing market next year? About face that the Fed did brought mortgage rates down and that you know helped the housing market a bit. I mean, it, it slowed down the decline, but I think we already have the worst housing market since the Great Recession right now. Uh, the numbers are pretty bad, and they're going to get worse. And I don't think it's ultimately going to help. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, because they're not going to get rates down below where they were last time. I don't think they're going to be able to do that on the housing market. And I do think you're going to start to see the defaults picking up again. Believe it or not, you know, there are still a lot of people that, um, you know, are going to not be able to make their mortgage payments. Some people still have adjustable rate mortgages that are going to reset higher than what they used to be. Um, but, you know, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And if you look at the statistics, I mean, already you have delinquencies in auto loans and student loans that are up to or exceed the levels of the Great Recession, and we're not even in a recession yet. So if people can't make their car payments now when they have jobs, Imagine what happens when they lose those jobs, because the job losses are coming, right? Because all recessions start with low unemployment, uh, but they, they end with high unemployment. So when a recession starts is when the layoffs begin. And we've got a lot of layoffs, and people who are unemployed are, have a hard time making their, their mortgage payments. And I do think there's a lot of houses that have been bought uh, by private equity companies. There's a lot of single-family homes that have been rented out. Uh, I think a lot of these homes uh, are, may end up for sale, and uh, you know they don't have mortgages, so they can sell for whatever they can get. They don't have to get the permission from the bank to do a short sale. Uh, so there can be a big glut of supply on this market with a lot of houses for sale and not a lot of buyers. So there's a lot of uh, downside risk. It's again, this is a bigger housing bubble, I think, than what we had before. A bigger stock market bubble than we had before. It's the biggest bond bubble we've ever had. And, of course, there's bubbles and all sorts of things. I mean, what do you expect when you keep rates at uh, zero for as long as the Fed did? You know, one of the ironies is recently the Federal Reserve came out and they were kind of like warning that, hey, maybe there's too much corporate debt out there. Like, duh. I mean, why do you think there's all this corporate debt out there? Because of the Fed. You know, (laughs) I mean, that's what the Fed wanted corporations to do. That's why the, the Fed was keeping rates so low, to enable corporations to keep issuing debt. And, of course, a lot of that debt was just used to buy up their own overpriced stock. It wasn't even used to make, uh, you know, in badly needed capital investments. It was used to prop up the stock price. And uh, this is going to, you know, work uh, horribly on the way down because then corporations, when they have to pay off that debt, they have to sell stock. 
and you know they're going to sell back stock at much lower prices than what they paid to buy it, and so a lot of shareholder value is going to be destroyed uh, in the process. But you know people should protect themselves. They should you know get out of U.S. stocks, get out of U.S. bonds, get out of the dollar. Yes, it hasn't collapsed yet, but don't let that lull you into a false sense of complacency that just because it hasn't happened, it's never going to happen. Just when you least expect it, right? Expect it. I've been expecting it for a long time, but I mean, people need to do something about it. You know, they should, if you don't have an account at Euro Pacific Capital, you got to set one up. You got to get into foreign assets. You got to get into foreign currencies, get into precious metals, get into these gold stocks. These things are ridiculously low priced. I mean, uh, nobody is worried about inflation. Nobody is worried about the dollar. And those are the things that everybody should be worried about. You know, the only people that seem to be worried are a few people who have been buying the cryptocurrencies. But, you know, unfortunately, they're going to find out they jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. But, you know, enough enough people, real people, real money is still complacent. They're not worried. And, uh, you know, so, you know, before they wake up and discover this, this is when people have to you know, do something for themselves, and that's what I'm helping people do. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get as many people off the Titanic as I can before it sinks. Before we wrap up, you did bring up the C word, cryptos, huge proponents of cryptocurrencies. Obviously, you've got to have 10 20% or more in precious metals, more now that equities have had such a bubble. You're worried about debt. You're worried about real estate. You're worried about shares. You're worried about the greenback. With all these concerns at Euro-Pacific Capital, precious metals should be overweighted. But can't we have a 1%, 2 3% allocation across a wide spectrum of cryptos in the event of a systemic currency crisis? Well, the currency crisis could include the cryptocurrencies. They, they have far more in common with fiat currencies. But Peter, they're so non-correlated to the U.S. dollar and almost every other currency out there. Well, the fact, yeah, well, the fact that they're non-correlated means that they could just fall. They could just go down when the market goes down. They're not negatively correlated. So you can buy a bunch of cryptocurrencies and then the stock, the, the you know, markets can go down and the cryptocurrencies are just as likely to go down too. I mean, you, there's not any kind of, uh, you know, protection there. But, you know, I still think that the crypto bubble popped. And I think that this is a bear market rally in cryptos. We're, we're nowhere near the old highs. So, it, you know, it's hard to argue that, you know, that, you know, we're not in a bear market or that, you know, the market didn't peak. We'll see. We'll see if uh, Bitcoin can make a new high uh, or if any of the other cryptos can make a new high along with it. Think that, that the market won't go that high? I mean, I think that there's been a lot of manipulation. I think you have a lot of the whales who are doing what they can to try to move this market higher, and they're hoping that the increase in price will, uh, you know, engender better sentiment and sucker in more more money, more buyers to come in. You know, kind of like a pump and dump. They're trying to pump it up. I don't know how successful they're going to be as far as how much higher they can get it. I mean, they're moving it higher, but I, I don't think that there's a lot of new people adopting crypto. I mean, if, uh, when you look at the search term. You can, you know, you, you barely saw a jump in the uh, people searching for Bitcoin, and it's already pulled back. So, you know, I'm, we're, there's not a lot of people around new money coming in. I think it's the same money. I think it's the same people who have been in, uh, just uh, you know, pushing it higher. But I don't see this this thing spreading widely, you know, like it was maybe uh, at the end of uh, 2017. Clearly, we saw the run up in 2017. It was epic, right? It was a 10, 20-fold run from sub-1,000 to 20,000. A huge part of that, I think you'd agree, was front-running the CME, right? As they were building up the futures, they obviously were accumulating Bitcoin and all the institutions and, and as you say, whales. There, and there was a lot of interest building and that built and the momentum built, and it was a global phenomenon. Don't you think, though, that once, just like we saw with GLD and SLV, the street tracks ETFs for silver and gold, as we start to see more momentum for those ETFs and the SEC finally gives the thumbs up on an Ethereum and other competing Bitcoin ETFs, that when an, a nation like Venezuela, Argentina, North Korea, Iran, Russia, China, when one of these countries say, hey, wait, we're going to take one-tenth of one percent of our reserves and we're going to buy some Bitcoin. I mean, the central banks are wanting to move out of fiat currencies if they want to do if they want to diversify their 
dollar reserves or their euro reserves, they're going to buy gold. That's what central banks do. They're going to buy hard money. They're not just going to buy some, you know, digital crypto. I mean, you know, I mean, they're, they're central bankers are not going to do that. Uh, speculators will do that. I mean, obviously, you know, people are betting that more people are going to buy cryptocurrency. So I get that bet. Uh, but in the, in the long run, there's going to be a bunch of bag holders because none of these things can work, right? And they're just going to collapse because the demand is going to go away. The demand is there now because people think the price is going to keep going up. And so greed is a, is a powerful motivator. And people are buying these things because they think they're going to get rich. And if you try to talk any sense into them, they don't want to hear it because they don't want to admit that they're not going to be rich. I mean, it's a cognitive dissonance. But that is all that is giving any of these cryptos value is the belief that they're going to keep on rising uh, and the belief that one day they're going to serve as money or as a medium of exchange or as digital gold. But none of this is actually going to happen. But that doesn't stop people from betting that it's going to happen. The price goes up. But no one knows when the price is going to fall through the floor. And it's going to happen. People aren't going to expect it. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to you know, see their dreams and their money just evaporate. Two or three bullet points. Venezuela is already floating their own cryptocurrencies. I think that really is the tipping point. It really sort of was the shot across the bow. What they were talking about doing was having a cryptocurrency backed by their oil reserves. Uh, you know, there was an article the other day I read on Zero Hedge about uh, Russia talking about launching a cryptocurrency backed by gold. Now, you know, that is different. When people talk about cryptocurrencies backed by something, or Facebook is talking about launching its own cryptocurrency, that's going to be backed by a basket of other fiat currencies, including the dollar, the euro, the yen. So when you're talking about a cryptocurrency that is backed by something, that is completely different than a cryptocurrency that is backed by nothing. If you're if you're going to back your currency with something real, and you know there will be people that will say, oh, "I'm going to back my cryptocurrency with a real estate portfolio," or "I'm going to back it with you know other we you know whatever." As long as it's backed by something tangible and real, and in fact, that doesn't even have to be tangible. You can have a cryptocurrency backed by patents or backed by royalties. You know, some a, a singer can come out and say, "Hey, I'm going to back this. I'm going to back cryptocurrencies with my portfolio of." Of music, I don't know, but you know, you can have, but there has to be something of actual value. They don't think that cryptocurrencies have to have any value, and 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 when the argument that they make is that nothing has any value, which is the most ridiculous argument. They say, look, gold doesn't have any value, uh, water doesn't have any value, wheat doesn't have any value, nothing has any value. It's all subjective, and since nothing has value, then there's no problem if Bitcoin doesn't have any value uh, because it's clear that. Things have value. Now, people may value them. Some people may value them more than others. Uh, but to, to say that nothing has any value and it's all subjective is a bunch of nonsense. And, uh, you know, uh, a painting, you could say, look, a, a painting, you know, the value of a painting, all right, yes, to some people it can have a lot of value and other people it might not have much value. But there's actually something there, you know, whether you appreciate the art or not. Uh, it's different than having something that does you can't appreciate anything. I mean, Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrencies has no physical substance. But apart from that, there's nothing that you could do with it. As as you know, like music, I can listen to. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't exist physically. It's it's a sound wave. Uh, but it, I can dance to it. I can I can sing along to it. It can make me feel good. Right? Those are those are real things. Uh, and you know, but Bitcoin doesn't do anything. I understand the technology to exchange it and all that, but you're you're not exchanging anything of value. The okay. fact that you can have a you know that you can have it secured and you know maybe nobody can hack it, we'll see. You know, I mean, I, people believe that you know you can't you know you can't hack into this thing. Well, I mean, you don't know what how the technology is going to evolve. But even if I buy into that argument, there is there is nothing really substantively different between Bitcoin and two thousand other digital currencies that exist. There's no limit to the number of digital currencies that can be created out of thin air because they have no actual value. There's nothing, you know, so you can create an infinite number of them. We're big believers in precious metals, as you know. I would just like to leave with you like I left with your former colleague, Michael Pinto. He's a tough customer uh, when it comes to new ideas and finance. One place I think we might be able to find some common ground 
it is a far superior and more efficient way of transferring wealth. Many business transactions today, several a day, are 10 to 20, 30, $50 million or more are transferred for as little as $12. That same transaction and can take a week. Why not anticipate, at least make plans in place to think since companies and individuals are doing it, it only makes common sense to extrapolate forward and recognize that central banks will wake up to the efficiencies of it eventually at some point. Where I think you can make money in Bitcoin is if you trade it. I mean, there. I mean, it's pretty volatile as far as trading. And uh, I don't know how long that hot potato is going to last, but clearly, uh, you know, it moves up and down and people can get in there and buy and sell it and make money. And they are making money. So, I mean, people could do that, but most people, you know, just buy it and they hold it and they, they, they're afraid to sell it because they're afraid of missing out, right? They, they, they think it's going to the moon and so they're hodling. But I think the people who are making money are people who are self-trading it because there's there's action there. And obviously, if you're a trader, Bitcoin was almost at 3,000, and now it's almost at 9,000. So you've, the asset has almost tripled. Uh, you know, I mean, if you're a trader, I mean, you don't, you know, you got to, if something tripled, you should sell it. Let's look forward to seeing how much of this actually plays out. Okay, bye-bye. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. Goldseek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24-karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. But sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, Many Jewelry. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. This is Robert Ian with Goldseek.com Radio. 
Several years into the early 2000s, when I first became active in the gold world, I met the late Adrian Douglas, who eventually became a board member of GATA, the Gold Antitrust Action Committee. He told me when he first became aware of GATA, he was skeptical about the claims of how the gold market was manipulated and suppressed. In fact, he began his journey setting out to prove GATA wrong. But instead, the very engineering, scientific, and business acumen he was using to disprove their conclusions actually disproved his own skepticism. And he became one of the greatest proponents of GATA and an advocate for fair and transparent markets with limited and accountable government until his untimely passing in early 2013. Let's be real. When nameless, faceless traders dump weeks or months, sometimes more, of paper, gold, and silver contracts onto the market, most often at thinly traded times, the goal certainly is not one of maximizing their return, because the consequence of such actions drives the price down suddenly and often triggers other selling, creating a downward cascade of additional selling pressure. These are not one-off occurrences. Someone, some entity, somewhere, clearly has wanted to keep the price of gold unattractive for a very long time. And they have been successful. Potential motives and likely players can be discussed another time. The point today is that the gold and silver markets, and those who trade in them, are not what they appear to be. And when something appears to contradict itself, you need to check your initial assumptions, because it's quite likely one or more of those assumptions is wrong. Other things are not what they appear to be either. Mainstream media news organizations seem more committed to advancing narratives than in reporting news. MSNBC, for example, just announced a 32% year-over-year drop in the lucrative 25-54 to demographic since their all-in advocacy of the Mueller report the past two years, which has resulted in failure and has translated into a loss of trust by viewers. So one must ask, are reporting agencies of this kind really news organizations, as they purport to be? Or are they narrative or propaganda organizations, whose goal is not to have you consider the facts and reach your own conclusion, but rather to tell you how to think, what to think, and why you should think it, regardless of the facts at hand? And when those facts don't pan out, reality eventually comes calling. Trust is the single biggest communication shortcut in the persuasion process. And when that trust is violated, it can take a long, long time to get it back, if ever. Another trust that is presently being violated is the purging and I mean purging and outright censorship, that is taking place on social media. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and now even MailChimp, the email newsletter service, are all on blatant missions of censorship by shutting down accounts and deplatforming users simply because those users have viewpoints analysis, and beliefs that are contradictory to the political views of the platforms. What originally made these tech platforms innovative and successful was the fact that independent content producers 
spread ideas and new ways of looking at things to countless niche audiences, which began to grow. And then some of those independent content creators became too successful and too independent, with online audiences surpassing those of mainstream media news organizations in some cases. For those who are engaged, the civil war of ideas and freedom has been well underway for some time. With antitrust investigations of tech giants being recently announced, the battle against censorship and for free speech is going to escalate to heights never before seen in history. Do not be surprised by anything. There's been so much hoopla about supposed meddling into the last election. Most are missing the forest for the trees, because the real focus will soon be the next election in 2020. If it is demonstrated by antitrust or some other means, the tech companies and or others have been censoring political speech ahead of the 2020 election. There are already executive orders in place that have significant powers. I suggest you look them up. If we somehow end up going down that road, like I said, do not be surprised by anything. Even a postponement of the 2020 elections due to extraordinary circumstances is not something that should be ruled out. And until next time, this is Robert Ian with ConquerChange.com. Thanks, Chris. Okay, Robert, thanks for another excellent installment. Well, that wraps up this week's GoldSeek.com radio episode. For two new big guests, be sure to check out next week's show. Until we talk to you again, have a great week. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice.